Is that it? Okay. All right. If you would take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. So in Colossians chapter 4, I want to look at just two verses, and I'm going to read these two verses, and then as we get in the message, I'll explain the context. context. We will look back in chapter 3 to see how Paul is leading up to these couple of verses here, and exactly probably what was on his mind, but more importantly, what the Holy Spirit likely had in mind whenever these were inspired so many years ago. So I invite you to stand. I, I don't, I'm not sure what you normally do, but let's stand out of respect for God's word as we look at just these two verses. Chapter 4, verse 2. Look at what the Bible says. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Withal praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we acknowledge that this word is from you, not only inspired, but also preserved. We have it in our hands today. We can trust it. And and we realize that on our own accord, we, we really can't fully understand your word. So we ask that you would teach us tonight, not through this preacher primarily, but through your Holy Spirit, so that when our time together is done, there is a fire burning in our bosom more brightly than when we came in to do your will and to live this truth. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You can go and be seated. Every several months in the Davidson home, we have an event that takes place that our kids greatly anticipate. God has blessed us with five children, not quite Montero status yet, but we have five children that God has blessed us with. And every few months we go to a store called Glory Bee that's locally owned and operated, and they sell honey products and beekeeping supplies and so forth. And what I, I will do, and we've done this the last couple of years, is go there and splurge and get 40 pounds of honey that's big time to the davidson kids i mean they love 40 pounds of honey and you mark it down whenever i bring this tub 40 pounds of honey through the front door and it is announced that it's time to tap into the honey you know they are not trying to do that themselves because they can't break the seal around there our oldest josiah who is nine even he would have a hard time with that he could figure it out but it takes a little bit of uh, strength in the hands and, you know, a little dexterity and so forth to undo that seal and get into that honey. But what you, that does take place is the kids line up, all of them except for our youngest who's one and can't quite walk yet. But all the older four have a spoon and they're just waiting to tap into the gold mine of honey. I share that with you because... What we're talking about here, the context is, is like a gold mine of honey. We're talking about the new life. Chapter 3, verse 1 deals with that. 
And it says, if ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And from chapter 3, verse 1, through the remaining verses of this chapter, leading up to verse 18, he's just expounding on the new life in Christ. And he's saying that basically, based on the doctrine in chapters 1 and 2, where it talks about how Christ is in you, the hope of glory, and how that plays out, the preeminence of Christ, and all that means as far as doctrinally. He finally gets to chapter 3 and says, because of this, you have a new life in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, he gets very practical on what this should look like. And of all places, he begins in the home. And what I want to do is just give a paraphrase, basically, of, chapter, of verses 18 through about verse 25 here to give you an idea the context here leading up to chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. In, cha- in chapter 3, verse 18, notice what it says. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, I'm just going to paraphrase what that verse is saying without preaching a whole other message on this. Basically, it's saying, Wives, submit to a husband who is inconsistent and possibly passive. It goes on in the next verse and says, Husbands, love your moody wives. Now, this is a paraphrase, okay? This is the DJV, the Daniel James version, okay? This is a paraphrase. In verse 20, it says, Children, obey your parents even when the rules don't make sense. And then in verse 21, it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath even when they use your tools and don't put them back and lose your tools. You see what it's talking about here? Now, what I've just described, can you do that in your own strength? Can I do that in my own strength? If I'm left to my own strength, there's no way I can do that. I fail miserably. And the context is, you must, have, you must be living into the, in the new life for that to take place. You must be tapping into this Gold mine of honey called the new life for that to take place. It goes on in chapter 3, verse 22. It says, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. It's basically saying, hey, employees, this would be the modern equivalent. Employees, make sure you honor your boss even when he or she is stressed out. And it doesn't make any sense why they might be stressed out. You don't understand why they're stressed out about this whole scenario. And then it goes on and says, masters, give unto your Servants, give unto your employees that which is equal and right, regardless of what the economy is doing and regardless of the budget. Do what's right. Now, when I look at this, I think this is shooting for the moon. This is humanly impossible to live what he just described. But the context in which he is writing is this is what the new life looks like. When Christ is risen in us, and we are depending upon him and living that new life, that how, that's how it flows out into our homes and to our workplaces. Humanly impossible, but as we live the new life, that's what it looks like. In chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. When I look at this, I think, how in the world? How in the world am I going to live that? Specifically, how are we going to tap into the honey? Undo the seal. We got our spoons ready. We want to enjoy some honey here. I want to enjoy the new life. I want to live what he just described. But how is that going to take place? 
That is what he deals with in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, which is what we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together this evening in the Word. So look at what it says. And three simple thoughts. The first thought really is kind of a summary statement. And then the second and third thought are going to elaborate how the first thought is taking place. So let's look at what it says here. Chapter 4, verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. The first thing Paul says here in tapping into the new life, to really enjoy that honey, so to speak, that 40 pounds is waiting for us. I mean, so much, something greater than 40 pounds of honey. But this new life, the way to tap into that is simply to be strong in prayer. Be strong in prayer. You say, where do you get that from the phrase, continue in prayer? Well, the word continue comes from two Greek words, and the idea literally means to be strong towards something. And so basically it's saying, make sure you're very strong towards this idea of praying. Now, here's what's ironic about this. When it says, be strong in prayer, this is something that flows out of weakness. It's something that, humanly speaking, you can't be strong if you're going to be strong in prayer. It implies that I realize I'm weak in this area in my life, and therefore I need to flee to someone who can help me. That's called prayer. Now, the Bible is very explicit about this. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus put it this way. And he spake a parable unto them to this end that men are always to pray and not to faint. The implication there is you don't pray, you will faint. But if you realize that you are on the verge of fainting, which would classify all of us as children of God, we're constantly on the verge of fainting, then that ought to drive us to prayer. So it flows from this idea of, I realize how weak that I am, but then it drives us to this idea of passionate devotion. I must pray. And say, like the psalmist said in Psalm 55, verse 17, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry unto the Lord. Uh, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 puts it this way, pray without ceasing. One of my favorite memory verses in the whole Bible. I got that one down. But the whole idea is that we realize our weakness And because of that weakness we realize, it drives us forward to the point, I have to pray. It redoubles our efforts, and we see how much we need to seek the Lord through this idea of prayer. Howard grew up not too far from here, Brooklyn, the Bayview Projects in the 1950s. He really didn't realize he was poor until at the age of seven, he was going to a day camp. And he was told that this was a camp for underprivileged children. He felt humiliated, embarrassed that he would be grouped in that. But it caused Howard to do something. He redoubled his efforts and started diverting to sports. And he was gifted as an athlete. And so he basically, when he was not in school from sunrise to sunset, he was on the basketball court or playing sandlot baseball or picking up a football game with the neighborhood kids there. But when he was about 12 years old, he picked up a newspaper route and it started instilling some work ethic in him. But he was motivated. He didn't want to be labeled as just this lower class working kid as he got older. He wanted to do something with his life. At age 16, he got a job in Manhattan working with garments, and he would spend hours stretching leather with his hands until his hands were all blistered to the point where they eventually got calloused. But then he finally got a scholarship to Northern Michigan University, and there he succeeded, did very well. Well, after graduating from Northern 
Michigan University, moved back to New York, and worked for Xerox for a few years. After that, he started to get into the coffee industry. And through some open doors that opened up to Howard, Howard became connected with a company named Starbucks. And today, there's a man named Howard Schultz that has led Starbucks from just basically oblivion, this little name, Seattle company, to one of the leading coffee makers in the whole world. The whole thing about Howard Schultz is he saw his weakness and it drove him to do something. Now, I'm not preaching tonight that we ought to just see our weakness. It ought to drive us to believe in yourself and you got that inner champion inside of you. That's what I'm saying tonight. I'm saying when we realize how weak we are, it drives us to this idea, I need to pray. I must seek the Lord. It could be early morning. The alarm goes off. It's not quite time to catch the subway to work, those wee hours of the morning. And just getting alone with your heavenly father and just expressing to him how much you need him that day. Pouring your heart out to him. Acknowledging, I can't do this without you helping and intervening. I need you to live the new life. It could be as you're riding the subway, everybody else is in their own little world listening to their iPhones or their iPods on on the subway. And you're sitting there on the way to work. And it just means crying out to the Lord saying, God, I need your help today. And praying for different needs, maybe in the church family, in your own life, for Pastor Montoro, for, the, for various brothers and sisters that are struggling. And just bringing these requests to the Lord. It could be on your lunch break as you're walking to the local fast food place on the corner where you're just going to grab a quick bite. As you're walking and you're passing scores of people on the way. But just acknowledging to God, God, I realize how weak I am and I desperately need you. And I'm utterly dependent upon you for only what you can do. It's not just a compartmentalized part of our life that's in the morning or at church. It ought to just permeate every single area of our lives. And so he says, the first admonition is, be strong in prayer. Which leads me to a question. And I believe Paul probably had this on his mind. How do you pray like this? How do you keep that inner drive to pray and keep that before your eyes to constantly pray and seek the Lord? Well, If you look at the grammar in these few verses, the main verb is the one we just covered. Be strong in prayer. All the others are secondary phrases. They're participles. I mean, they're not the main point that he's trying to make. So he's describing what he just said, continue in prayer. So how does he describe this? What does he say? Well, it goes on in chapter 4, verse 2. And it says, and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So how are you going to pray? Well, He says, basically, you are watchful with gratitude. Now, that word watch literally means to stay awake. Has the idea of, man, you're exhausted, you're tired, you feel like you're nodding off, you're doing the head bobbing thing. And and in the middle of this, you come to your senses that I've got to stay on the edge of my seat and realize what's going on around me here. That's what the word literally means. That's a picture it paints here. Let me tell you what. Staying awake spiritually is not to give you an idea of what it really is. Jesus had a warning in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Be not like the heathen, for they use vain repetitions. Now, when we start using vain repetitions in our prayers, I mean, for example, you're tucking your kids in bed at night, and as you're tucking them in bed, you say, Dear God, thank you for the food. You're in danger, and I've been there before. 
That's a vain repetition. There's a huge gap between your brain and your mouth at that point. And we're just going through the motions. We are not awake spiritually. But being awake has this idea there's a strong connection between the mind and the heart and what comes out of the mouth. And it's flowing from a heart that's on fire for God and wants him to do something. And we're trying to pour that out before him. That's what it means to stay awake spiritually. But it goes on and says, don't just stay awake. Stay awake with gratitude, thankfulness. Now, that's throughout the word of God to be grateful. But I love what Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says. It says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. You see, a, a vital ingredient to praying is this idea of gratitude. Now, let's think about this logically. Why would he put gratitude in this? Why doesn't he just say, well, you just keep praying and praying and keep asking? Well, many of you have had a three-year-old in your home before. Some of you have a three-year-old in your home right now, like I do. I, we have a three-year-old named Esther. And Esther, she does something. She wants Daddy to come up and give her a shoulder ride or to spin her around or to toss her on the sofa or to do something fun with her. And inevitably, you know what a three-year-old does, what Esther does? As soon as I get done, she says, can you do it again, please? Can you do it again, please? I mean, just really quick. The quicker I say it, the quicker we'll do it again. And with a three-year-old, it's a matter of stopping and saying, now, before Daddy does this again, I need to hear thank you. Thank you, Daddy. Can I do it again, please? Can I do it again, please? <laughs> I mean, they got it down, don't they? But the whole idea is so many times in our prayer life, we're like Esther, just, can you do it again, please? Can you do it again? And it's all requests, but we don't stop to reflect on what God did when we prayed yesterday. And how he gave us grace to get through our job yesterday or last week or, or last month and something we were begging God to do. It was encouraging just hearing those testimonies a few minutes ago. You know what you're doing? That was gratitude. That was thanksgiving. And so what that means for us is having a regular time in our prayer time where before we start coming in to the throne, so to speak, and bringing these, all these requests before God Almighty is stopping and thanking him for what he's done. If you don't thank him for what he's done, you might have missed the answer to prayer that he gave you yesterday. It might mean stopping once a week. Maybe it's on your day off or early Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, which is a great day for reflection. And stopping early morning before any of the other family is up with a good cup of coffee next to you and getting out a piece of paper or a diary or a journal and just writing down all the blessings from this last week. And make him second person directed right to God after all that he's done for you this last week. I realize all of us are wired differently, but the whole idea is having some habit in our lives where we are constantly starting our prayer lives with gratitude, thanking him for what he has done. So as I look at this, it says be strong in prayer. Well, how should we pray? Well, you make sure you're watchful with thanksgiving. But then he's not done. He still has verse 3 and verse 4. Notice what he says. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which, also, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now this third one. Let me tell you what he's basically getting at here and then I'll explain. In verse 3 and verse 4, Paul isn't just admonishing them how to pray. He's modeling the last thought here. 
When I say modeling, what I'm talking about is he is basically through his life's example making this request. He's saying, make sure you are utterly dependent. Make sure you're utterly dependent. You say, where do you get that from those verses? Well, Paul has already admonished them. Make sure you're praying. Make sure you're awake and you're grateful. But then he comes back and he says, and, and while you're at it, could you, uh, could you pray for me? Now think about this. Who wrote these words? We're not talking about some college grad who's green behind the ears, who's overwhelmed with just some work before him, and he's never pastored before, never preached, never ministered to people. We're talking about a man who was imprisoned in Rome. We're talking about the era that is towards the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28 when he's in Rome, and he is writing to some people that he has never even met. At least it's not recorded in the book of Acts that he ever met these people. And he is admonishing them and saying, I want you to pray, but he has decades of preaching experience behind him. I mean, this is after Paul has gone into Philippi, sung praise at midnight, led the Philippian jailer to the Lord, and made sure this church was off and running. This was after he went into Thessalonica and spent there just three Sabbath days. And from there, a church was birthed from Paul's preaching and teaching. It was after he went to the Bereans who searched the scriptures to make sure those things were so. It was after he stood before men like Festus and Agrippa and, and Bernice and all these, these pompous royalty there in, in the Palestine area. And after he witnessed them to the point where they were almost quaking in their knees at Paul's testimony and witness. And he writes to these people and he says, uh, could you, could you uh, pray for me? You know what he's saying? I'm utterly dependent upon God. I need you to pray for God to do something that I cannot do with all the decades of experience that God has given me in the ministry. Now let's look specifically at this request. Look at verse 3. The request is that God would open unto us a door of utterance. So he's implying this is something only God can do. I can't open up this door. Have you ever witnessed somebody where I mean, they were stonewalling. I mean, it was just, there, there was no headway whatsoever. And, and you made it as simply as, as you could, and they just weren't getting it. No, God has to open up a door for people to get it and to understand. It goes on and says that we may speak the mystery of Christ, for which also I am in bonds. Now, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 27, you find out what that mystery exactly is. Without getting into detail, he basically says this is the mystery that has been proclaimed all through the ages that the prophets didn't even understand. It is the fact that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. The fact that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, would indwell inside of you and me. That's an amazing mystery. And he's revealed it to me, Paul says, and I want to reveal it to others. All these Jewish people that are set in their ways, the Orthodox Jews, the Judaizers, as he would call them, they are clueless how the God Almighty, in the form of the Holy Spirit, can dwell inside of them through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to get that message out so they can understand that only God can do that. I can't do that. When I look at this, this human impossibility for this to happen. I can't help but think about a young shepherd boy going out with five smooth stones against a man who is over nine feet tall who is just 
probably using derogatory terms, using most likely foul language towards him, cussing, so to speak, in his Philistine language at David. And as David is there with five smooth stones, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, and he will give you into my hand, and I will feed you to the birds. <laughs> and he gets that slingshot, he whips that thing around, and sure enough, he lets that thing go, and God guides that stone, nails him right between the eyes, and down comes the giant, shaking the whole ground as he tumbles down. And of course, the best part for elementary age boys, he takes a sword, and off comes the head, and he gets a great victory that day. Now, David did something that only God could do. That's exactly what Paul is asking for of these people. Pray that God would do something only he can do. I fear too many times in our struggles and trials that come our way, we're living only in the plane of what we can handle or only kind of an existence mindset, only just get me through. I mean, for example, there's maybe a, a sickness or a health struggle that we're going through, and that does get us looking up. But so many times our prayer requests get short-sighted saying, God, I pray that you just get me through this sickness. Help me be able to get back to work by such and such a time because if I don't, my sick time is used up or my vacation time is used up. Please get me through this. Now, we ought to be praying. And there's nothing wrong with praying like that. But lifting our sights a little higher and say, I pray that you use this sickness in a way that only explanation is that you did this, God. Show the doctors how in control you are. Now I realize we're not charismatic tonight. We're not going to have a... A hand laying service where we're going to have healing or anything like that, but God can still do the amazing. When it comes to financial struggles, and maybe we receive the pink slip at work, but the bills are still coming. There's no cash flow, but plenty of bills. And we're getting stressed as far as how is this going to be met? How is this going to be taken care of? Too many times we get short sighted. Say, God, I pray that you just get these bills paid, this utility bill and the rent or the mortgage here. Just get this paid. That's all I want, God. Just get this taken care of so I can move on to the next era in my, or next season of my life. But God wants to show himself so much powerful than just getting the bills paid. He wants to do something in you and your life and my life during those times. And if we would just have that in our mindset when we pray, say, God, do the impossible. Show yourself mighty through this. Something, it would just define my expectations what you could do here. I think of even socially, we go through relationships, and there's family relationships. It could be our own children. It could be a former spouse. It could be estranged cousins, aunts, uncles. It could be coworkers. But there are certain relationships where, boy, we just start praying, say, God, I pray that you just help me to bite my tongue when I'm around this person. And that, that's what we settle for in our requests. God, help me just to deal with this person and not, not erupt. But God wants so much more out of a broken relationship. I don't know what God would do in any particular scenario, but God wants to do the impossible. Some things that he would only, the only way to attribute the, the credit or the explanation is God did that. That's the only way that can take place. Now, I could go on, but the whole point of what Paul is saying is this is how you tap into the new life. There's 40 pounds of honey and you're, we're with spoons waiting around. We realize we need the honey. But how are you going to tap into this? Basically summing all this up. Yes, he does say, be strong in prayer. Well, how are you strong in prayer? Well, you make sure you watch with thanksgiving. And you don't just stop by watching with thanksgiving. You make sure you're utterly dependent upon God. Summed up, he's say, basically saying this. The way you tap into the new life simply is 
living life through constant, fervent dependence. Constant, fervent dependence upon God. Now, the way he handles this is he mandates it first in verse 2, and then he models it in verses 3 and 4. That's powerful. Paul is living what he is admonishing these people to do. Hey, I'm going to be dependent. Please pray for me. I'm asking you to do something that only God can do. I can't do this. But God can open up a door. Please pray to that end. When I look at this, I can't help but think about my carnal side coming out. And, and maybe you come from a very disciplined background. You'd ask this question too. But what about hard work? I, I mean... Tapping in the new life, don't you need to pull up your own bootstraps and you got to strive for and work hard? And the Christian life is tough, you know, especially in New York. You got to work hard for it. That's how you live the new life. But turn back to chapter 2, verse 6. Paul already dealt with that. Look at what it says Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. So let me stop for a second. Do you remember how you received Christ? Did you have to work? I strove. I I fought so hard to finally get saved. I'm telling you, it it was just a lot of hard work. No, it's not like that at all. No, you're a recipient. God brought you to your senses through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And you came to the point and said, "I'll, I'll receive Christ. I'm turning to Jesus and believing in him alone. That's how it happened. Well, what does it say in this verse? Verse 6, so walk ye in him. The same way you got the Christian life is the same way you live the Christian life through utter dependence. You receive Christ through utter dependence. That's how you live the Christian life through utter dependence. It doesn't really change. It's not a dichotomy here. It's not two separate parts. It's a whole. Oh yeah, there is a salvation day. Don't get me wrong. It's not just a process that happens just through you know a whole bunch of events and you're just kind of gradually born again. No, there's one set in time where we trust Christ. But the way you move forward in the Christian life is the same way you receive the Christian life through utter dependence. We're talking about faith. But as I look at this, i got to be honest and maybe transparent here. Why don't I? Why don't we make prayer more of a priority? I mean, that's really the case. <laughs> if the honey is waiting for us and we got our spoons and, and we, we want to enjoy the, the new life, why, why don't we make it a higher priority? Well, if we're not making it a priority... It's probably because we don't see the need to make it a priority because you make time for what's most important, right? It's none of this, well, I just don't have time. No, we make time for what's most important, myself included here. And so could it be the fact since we don't see our need, we think a little too highly of ourselves, and therefore because we are sufficient in of ourselves, it doesn't drive us to prayer like we should? If only we would see ourselves in From the eyes of God, how utterly weak, dependent we really are. Oh, we would make prayer such a higher priority in our lives, myself included. Let's think about real life just for a moment before we're done. There's daily scenarios where you and I need the grace of God to respond. For God to do the impossible. I touched on these a little bit, but let me bring them up again, maybe with a little bit more detail. You go to work tomorrow, and your boss, without even 
really asking how your weekend went or, or there's no chit-chat, just comes in storms and you can tell he is stressed out and just starts going down the list. Okay, this needs to be done today, this needs to be done today, this needs to be done today. And man, it's overwhelming. There's no way you can get all this done in one day. There's no way. How are you going to respond? Only the grace of God can give you the proper response. And depending upon him is how that grace of God is activated. You say, where is that found? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the who? The humble, the dependent, those who are relying upon him. It could be that you're going through this next week, and it's not your boss. It's your spouse who's just having a rough day, who's just moody. Now, you're trying to be kind. You, 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 you bring her flowers home from work. And she still snaps at you. What are you going to say? Only the grace of God is going to be able to help you at that point. Utter dependence. Fervent dependence. It could be you're a mother. You have children. It could be young children. It could be teenagers. And it's one of those days, man, you've tried every discipline tactic you know. You, you, you've followed everything that Brother Montero has, has uh, discipled you in as far as, you know, parenting approach and dealing with children. Discipline. You try to be cheerful. You try to have fun. I mean, you do all these different things. And, man, these children just aren't getting it. How are you going to respond? It's only the grace of God that's going to help you. Utter dependence. You're not going to do it in your own strength. But also, I think, not just in our personal responding, but divine doors that God opens throughout the week to witness. And God gives us open doors to witness at the most inconvenient times sometimes. Could be you just got home from work or you're on the last leg of the subway and you're just exhausted. Now you've been around people all day. <laughs> and, and you just want some quietness. You don't want to hear any more noise. You just want to go into your apartment there, shut the door, collect your thoughts a little bit. But, but as, you, as you're walking down the sidewalk, there's a homeless fella who, who's asking for a handout. And, and in the middle of him asking for the handout, you're just exhausted, but you feel the Holy Spirit prodding you to say something more. And you feel like the need to really bring up the gospel with this homeless man on the streets. You're just exhausted. How in the world are you going to witness that person, that homeless soul who has a priceless worth in the eyes of God? How are you going to witness to him? It's only going to be the grace of God, not going to be in your own strength. It could be you're a stay-at-home mother, a wife who, I mean, just is trying to raise children and, and your husband's out working. But there is an atheistic neighbor who's highly educated that lives just above you. And you know who he is. And there's a little interaction, but at a certain point, he brings up God and makes kind of a, maybe a snide remark. Now, in your flesh, there's certain things you want to say. Or in your flesh, you want to run, intimidated. But by the grace of God, we can respond. It could be you're, 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 you're dealing with your wealthy landlord. And here you are, the, quote, lowly tenant. And you don't have, you know, tons of money in the bank, but they do. And as you're doing some business with them one day, you know, God is just nudging on your heart. Hey, uh, how about you bring up God? Bring up Jesus to them. Be a witness to them. In your own strength, there's no way. Here you are in, as far as social status. I mean, you're down here. They're way up here. They got their meals. They got their real estate, all this stuff as a landlord. And 
What are you going to say at that time? If it's in your own strength, you're not going to say a thing. But by the grace of God, you can be a witness. I could go on and on. I hope you get the idea this evening. I can't help but think of an infant church that's getting started not too many miles from here, surrounded by tens of thousands of needy souls. And a pastor has a fire in his heart, but humanly speaking, the odds are against him. Even with a church family behind him, the odds are against what's going on here. But that is exactly where God wants open door Bible Baptist Church to be utterly dependent upon him for what only he can do at North Brooklyn Baptist Church. You know, I have a five-year-old boy named Micah. And Micah, he, he's a visionary, much more than his daddy is. And he, his mind is constantly going as far as things he wants to make. And he'll pick up the, I mean, the, the smallest sticks in the yard or, or maybe just some, some scraps of wood left over from a project that I've been working on. And, and he'll make all these cool contraptions. And I don't want to forget recently I replaced a door in our house. And I replaced the casing. I took the casing off. I put it out in our garage. And it was just sitting there. And, and I, I came home from work on that day. And Micah came up, stuck out his chest, and proudly announced that, Daddy, from that wood from the door, I'm making a plane and it's going to fly. I said, really, son? Tell me about it. He takes me out there, shows me, you know, two pieces of door casing like this, you know, a big cross. And he's imagined to get, get a horizontal stabilizer in the back, even put a propeller on the front, you know, from another piece of scrap wood. Man, I'm telling you, he's cruising forward on this project. He has his vision before him. He says, Daddy, I'm going to make this plane fly. Can you help me do that? As I was preparing this, I couldn't help but think of that question. There's no way this Daddy can make casing fly. <laughs> There's no way. But I have a Heavenly Father who can. And he wants his children to constantly come before him so he can make casing fly in your life. This morning, or this evening, let's go Lord in prayer and ask him to do what only he can do. And depend upon him to do what only he can do. Let's go and stand, heads bowed, eyes closed. We'll have a word of prayer.